Anyways, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and love to help you get plugged into the community here. And like Aaron was saying, small groups is the best way to do that. It's a great way to just get to know people, to grow in your faith with one another, and to keep plugging into a community that can help you wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus. And so we'd encourage you towards that. So also love to invite you into our summer sermon series. We're calling it Jesus on Every Page. And what we've been doing throughout the summer is walking through a bunch of different Old Testament passages together. And we've been highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately meant to kind of teach us some moral lesson or just show us who we're supposed to be like or who we're not supposed to be like. But instead, all the stories are primarily meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. And we've seen how the, the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, that it's all actually about God. God and the gospel. That's not something I came up with. That's not something some brilliant pastor or theologian invented, but that's what Jesus himself taught. In places like John 5 and Luke 24, we see him teaching the religious leaders and the disciples both that at all of the scriptures, they're about him. They point to him. And so at the heart of our series this summer is learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did with him and with the gospel at the very heart of all the stories. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we take a look at a story, uh, one that you probably haven't heard before. It's a, it's a little one tucked away in the pages of 2 Samuel about a, a, an interaction that King David has and the radical kindness that he shows towards a guy named Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a story that takes place kind of at the height of David's reign and power as Israel's king. He's defeated Goliath, and, and, and everyone has liked him for that, but he's, now he's done running from Saul, the previous king, who was both jealous and afraid of David. And he's won the long uh, battle, the long civil war that, that ensued after Saul's death. And he's ascended now to the throne and become king, and he's defeated the rest of Israel's surrounding enemies. And so there's finally this season of peace and prosperity in, in, in Jerusalem. And on top of that, God's just made this incredible promise to David in chapter 7, just before our passage this morning. And, and the promise is that this kingdom that he's given David, it's not going to end when David dies or when any of his grandsons die. Instead, it's going to be a forever kind of kingdom because no matter what happens, and trust me, a lot does, God is never going to stop being faithful to David. He's never going to stop loving him and his descendants. He is always going to be faithful. And so it's in response to all of God's kindness towards him and this incredible promise of unconditional love and faithfulness that we're going to see David this morning eagerly seeking out someone to whom he can show that same kind of love and faithfulness. Because as we're going to see this morning, what I want to show you in our passage is that recipients of God's unconditional love and faithfulness cannot help but become emissaries of that love and faithfulness to others. Recipients of God's love and faithfulness cannot help but become emissaries of it to others. You see, the, the most natural, instinctive, natural response to receiving and experience the unconditional love and kindness of God is to display it, is to show it to others. It's such a beautiful story. It's so compelling. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. It not only exemplifies God's character, 
but it gets at the very heart of what makes the good news about the gospel such good news. And so I'm looking forward to showing you through this morning as we take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into the Old Testament and see if we can't find Jesus on every page. God, thanks so much for you. And thanks so much for our time together here in your word this morning. And God, we just come humbly to you this morning, longing that the good news of the gospel might be clear to us in the pages of a story tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament. And that as we look at David's interaction with this guy named Mephibosheth, that the good news of your unconditional love and faithfulness and friendship to us might be good news to our hearts again. And so, uh, God, I don't have any power to make that happen, but you do. And so I pray as we study your word that you might cause the good news of the gospel and the personal work of Jesus to be beautiful to us in a way that transforms us like it does for the people in the story. And so we need you for that. We ask for our good and for your glory that you do it in us, we pray. Amen. All right, now, like I said, we're going to be this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It reads this way. Now David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there still no one, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's uh, grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. All right, well, our passage opens up in verse 1, and we see David is actively searching for somebody that he can show kindness to. The word kindness in our passage is repeated three times, and it's at, really at the center of everything that's going on in the story. And so before we really dig into the story as a whole, we need to kind of 
take a closer look at that word, not only because it's central to the story, but because it's often easy for us to misunderstand. You see, as good Midwesterners, we tend to equate kindness with like general niceness, right? It's our motto. We're Midwest nice around here, right? It's nice. Kindness is about just being pleasant and getting along with everybody and not really ruffling feathers, right? It looks like smiling at the clerk who's checking you out at the store or waving at your neighbors when they come home from work or maybe letting a friend borrow your lawnmower when theirs is broken, right? Maybe, maybe it even looks like doing nice things for people every once in a while, like snow blowing your neighbor's driveway when they're out of town, right? Or bringing somebody who just had a baby, bringing them a meal or something like that, right? And those are great things, and they are indeed very nice. Uh, but spoiler alert, uh, that's not the Bible's definition of kindness, and it is absolutely not the type of kindness that King David is seeking to show someone this morning. You see, the word for kindness David uses is the Hebrew word hesed, and it's actually a really difficult word to translate because it is so rich in meaning. There's, there is not one English word that does a good job of encapsulating all that this Hebrew word has said really is trying to communicate. Sometimes, like it is in our passage three times this morning, it's translated as kindness, but it is so much more than that. Imagine kindness and love and loyalty and faithfulness and graciousness and mercy and compassion all like wrapped up into this one idea, this one word that is has said. The majority of the time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe God's covenant love and faithfulness to his people. Or as Sally Lode Jones puts it in her book, The Jesus Story Pipe, right, has said is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. See, then that type of kindness has said, that's what David had just experienced in chapter 7 from God, right, when God promised him that no matter what happens, he was always going to be faithful to him. He was never going to stop loving David and his descendants. And that was such overwhelmingly good news to David that he could not keep it to himself. He, he had to share it with someone. He had to show it to someone. But David is not just looking for anyone to show that kind of kindness to. He's not interested in some random drive-by act of kindness because, again, that is not what said is. No, instead he's looking for someone very specific to show God's kindness to, and who he is looking for is altogether surprising. Verse 1, it says, he asks, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And he's told about a guy named Mephibosheth. That brings us to the first thing I want to show you this morning. As we take a look at David's kindness I want to show you four things about his kindness we see in the passage. They're all ours in case you're taking notes, right? And the first one is the recipient of David's kindness. See, and it's this guy named Mephibosheth, and there's a number of things we learn about him in this passage. First is that he's, he's crippled, right? He's lame in both feet. Second Samuel chapter 4 tells us that that has been the case since he was about five years old. While trying to flee for safety in the aftermath of a battle, his nurse had dropped him, and he had fallen in such a way that both of his feet had suffered permanent damage. And that is obviously tragic and sad, but in a military and agrarian society like it was in ancient Israel, that's even worse. 
See, because being lame in both feet wasn't just a disability that made life more challenging. Right? It meant that you couldn't work and that you couldn't fight. And so to a king, you were basically useless. On top of that, many people considered someone lame in both feet to be cursed by God. Leviticus 21 said that, that the lame, those who were lame in their feet weren't allowed to enter the temple. Additionally, in Hebrew, there's really some symbolism that's going on both with his name and the place where he lives. Mephibosheth's name, it literally means spreader of shame. And the place where he is from, the place where he's staying in Lodabar, it means no place, nowhere. It's literally the capital of Nowheresville, right? It is the middle of nowhere. But the most important and most astounding thing that we learn about this person to whom David is seeking to show God's covenantal love and kindness to is what verse 1 tells us, that he comes from the house of Saul. See, if you're not familiar, Saul was the king of Israel just before David took the throne. And while David and Saul got along great in the beginning, everybody loved the defeater of Goliath. Everyone was on his team for a while, right? But when it became clear that God had appointed David to replace Saul as king, Saul instead turns on David and forces him to flee and to live on the run for years, right? He's constantly trying to hunt him down and have him killed. And, and, and on top of that, as one commentator puts it, right, in ancient times when a new regime or a new dynasty comes to power, the name of the game always was Purge. Right? The new king must solidify his power or position, and the conventional policy was solidification by liquidation. You get rid of anyone and everyone from the previous regime that could pose any kind of potential threat to your claim to the throne. And so what we're, the author of 2 Samuel is trying to help us see is that Mephibosheth is not just some guy who many regarded as useless or cursed by God, living in obscurity in the middle of nowhere. No, he was in fact an enemy of the crown. In other words, he wasn't just an unlikely recipient of David's kindness. See, Mephibosheth is an unimaginable recipient of David's kindness. He was an enemy who David seeks out not to exact revenge on, but instead to restore and to invite into relationship. And that brings us to the second thing I want to show you as we took, take a look at David's kindness in the passage. We see the recipient, but also we see the results of David's kindness. They're all summed up in verse 7. Mephibosheth is brought before King David and he says to him, Don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now there's more here than we have time to do the deep dive on, but I want to show you three things, three results of David's kindness that we see in this verse. And the first thing is that Mephibosheth's fear is removed. As a descendant of the previous hostile regime and therefore an enemy to the current king and crown, Mephibosheth not only would have lived in fear in the moment he sits before King David in his courtroom, but he would have lived in constant fear that one day someone would find out where he had hidden in Lodabar and that there'd be a knock on his door from David's soldiers and all of it would be over. But instead, the very first word David utters to him, change all of that. As Mephibosheth bows down in front of him, I can only imagine eyes clenched shut 
for fear of a sword falling on his head. Instead, hears words of kindness and promises of provision come raining down. David says, don't be afraid. I intend to show you kindness. Can you imagine the kind of relief Mephibosheth would have felt in that moment? The weight of living for years under the constant fear of retribution, gone instantly. This great king who had come to power by God's very hand so clearly had not brought him in to exact revenge, but had instead brought him in and removed his fear. See, but that's not all. See, David's kindness not only removes Mephibosheth's fear, it restores his fortune and his honor. You see, David tells him that he's going to restore to him all the land of his grandfather Saul, who, as the former king, would have had an enormous estate, which is why David also appoints Ziba and his whole household to be caretakers of this land for Mephibosheth and to take care of it and to plant the crops and to take them in and to be managers of this huge estate. You see, in a moment, Mephibosheth has gone from having nothing in the middle of nowhere to becoming a very wealthy man. But it's not just a change in his financial situation. You see, this kindness David shows him, it's a transformation of his status and of his honor. You see, we don't have time to do the deep dive on this, but suffice it to say, in ancient Israel, owning land was a lot more than about just having a real estate investment. You see, it was about having a claim to the very promises of God as his covenant people. See, it was the promised land. And to have a share in it was to have a share in the very promises of God. See, but that's not all. Because we see at the end of verse 7 that in addition to removing his fear and restoring his fortune and his honor, part 3, David gives him a seat at his table. And not just once, not just twice, verse 11 adds, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons always. You see, David did not just bring Mephibosheth in so he could like do something really nice and generous and like get that off his chest, right? It wasn't like, wow, I'm really feeling a lot of weight and burden here. Like I got to do something nice for somebody so I can stop feeling that weight and burden and get that out of my mind. Instead, he invites Mephibosheth into relationship and into community. He invites him into his family See, Mephibosheth had lost all of his extended family and lived as a lonely enemy of the state for more than a decade at this point. And King David, in a moment, instead transforms him from a lonely enemy to an adopted son and a friend of the king who was given a seat of honor and privilege and relationship at his table always. See, the results of David's kindness towards Mephibosheth can be described as nothing less than utterly life-transforming. It is the ultimate plot twist in an otherwise tragic story of, his, of Mephibosheth's life. And Mephibosheth's response to David's kindness, like everyone else's there that day, must have been and was utter shock. You see, he is not only astounded by David's lavish kindness, he's confused. 
Right, verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and he says, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Dogs in ancient times were not beloved pets like they are today. They were nuisances and vermin. Right, people thought about them the way you or I might think about rats. Right, an infestation, disgusting, disease-carrying things that needed to be gotten rid of or at best just ignored. And in calling himself a dead dog, what Mephibosheth is saying is what everyone else is thinking. There is no reason why he should be doing this for me. There is no reason why King David should be treating me this way. Later on in chapter 19, Mephibosheth reiterates this in a conversation he has again with David he says, all my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from you, my lord, the king. And yet instead, you have given your servant a place amongst those who eat at your table. You see, Mephibosheth understands that he does not deserve the kindness that David is showing him. He is not worthy of it. He has not earned it. And he is right. He's right. There is no earthly reason why David should treat him this way. And so the question you have to ask is why? Why? Why does David show him such lavish kindness? It brings us to the last R this morning. See, we see the reason for David's kindness. See, Mephibosheth was right that he did not deserve the extravagant kindness David was showing him. He should have been treated like an enemy, but instead he had been treated like a son. He was not worthy of it. You see, but there was someone who David thought was. Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Do you notice in the passage how every time David talks about a longing to show kindness to someone, he says, for Jonathan's sake. See, Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, was not only David's closest and dearest friend, Jonathan was someone who had shown David the same kind of hesed, love, and faithfulness before. You see, years ago when things were starting to go sour between David and Jonathan's father, Saul, Jonathan did something incredible. Instead of siding with his father and trying to maintain his position as the heir to the throne, Jonathan not only willingly steps aside, but he actually goes to bat for David and steps into harm's way on his behalf so that he might protect his friend David from his father so that David can take the throne that he was supposed to inherit. You see, David had a friend who had shown him God's said, through whom he had experienced firsthand God's covenant love and faithfulness, a friend who, who had put himself in harm's way so that David might escape harm, a friend who had lost his throne so that David could take it. And in chapter 7, when God promised to love David like that, David's mind raced back to the first moment he'd experienced as said. And he could not be just a recipient. He couldn't be just a vessel of that kind of love and faithfulness any longer. He had to become a conduit, an emissary of it to others. And so both God and Jonathan's love and kindness, as Tim Keller puts it, were imputed to Mephibosheth. 
He was treated like a son and a friend instead of an enemy, not because he deserved it, not because he had earned it, not because he was worthy of it, but because of the worthiness of David's friend, his father, Jonathan, had been imputed to him. Are you starting to see Jesus? Are you starting to see him in the pages of this story? You see, the good news of this passage is not just that God's unconditional love and kindness were imputed to Mephibosheth because of the faithfulness and the faithful kindness of David's friend Jonathan. But the good news of this passage points us to the reality that God's unconditional, life-transforming love and faithfulness and kindness is imputed to you and to I because of the covenantal faithfulness of a friend who is far greater than Jonathan ever was. See, the reason why you and I can come before God without fear, as Hebrew tells us, the reason why we can receive an eternal inheritance that cannot fade or spoil or perish, as 1 Peter reminds us, the reason why we can be adopted into God's family as his children instead of being crushed as his enemies is because you and I have a friend friend who didn't just lay aside a future earthly throne, but who left a heavenly one he was already ruling and reigning from. And who didn't just defend us from an earthly enemy, but who conquered the ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death on our behalf by dying in our place for us. Who is that friend? Of course it's Jesus. John chapter 15, he tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants, instead I have called you friends. Love each other as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, you and I are just like Mephibosheth. Because of our sin, we have made ourselves enemies of God, the true king, and the only thing we deserve from him is wrath and death. And yet because of Jesus, who has died in our place as our savior and our friend, God instead relates to us like beloved family and cherished friends, and he showers us with his said. His never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. See, and it's the sacrificial friendship of Jesus that you and I, that we remember every week when we take communion. See, communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's a chance for you to remember that when you were an enemy of God, God made you his friend, 
by dying in your place and shedding his blood and allowing his body to be broken on your behalf. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your true and better friend, to be your greater Jonathan, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. Tip the bread in the juice. Let it be a reminder to you of Jesus' body and blood which were broken and shed so that you might have peace with him. And that although you were an enemy, you might be treated by God as his beloved family and friend. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him and if and if you're even ready for surrendering to his kind of kingly leadership in your life. And I just want you to know you are welcome here and we are so glad that you are here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion because God is not after religious rituals and he's not after people who are just going through the motions. He's after people whose whole hearts rely on him, who trust in him to be their true and better, greater Jonathan. The one whose friendship and faithfulness has been imputed to them. And so as we sing, as we take communion together, wherever you're at, I want to encourage you this morning, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and you have never experienced the kindness of God, because you have never received the friendship of Jesus, his son. And you are living as an enemy of the true king, and like Mephibosheth, you are crippled, and yet, unlike him, it is not because of someone else's accident. It's a result of your own sin and your own rebellion, and the only way for you to go from being a dead dog like Mephibosheth to a beloved son of the king and a member of his family is for the rewards of Jesus' covenantal friendship to be imputed to you by faith. That's the only way. And so like Mephibosheth, my prayer for you is that you might admit that you are altogether wholeheartedly unworthy of that kind of friendship. Because here's the key. To admit you are unworthy is the key into the door. To admit that you do not earn it, you have not deserved it, and yet he offers it to you freely. That's the way in. And so my heart for you this morning is that you might not run in, free, in fear from admitting your need for God, but instead you might wholeheartedly embrace your desperate need for him because that's where he can meet you in it. And so instead of relying on yourself and trying to clean yourself up, rely on him. For those of you who are here, though, who have experienced the friendship of Jesus and therefore the covenantal love and kindness of God in the gospel, my prayer for you this week has been that God might guard your hearts from moralism, that he might guard your hearts as we read this passage, just from an attitude of doing better and trying harder. It is so easy to read stories like this and be like, all right, I, there's, a thing, there's a new thing on my checklist. I got to show some kind of radical kindness to somebody, and I got to get that checked off my list. It's a new burden. It's a new weight to bear. But that's not the point of this passage at all. In fact, that's the antithesis of the passage. 
See, my prayer for you is been instead that in remembering and dwelling on the unmerited kindness of God towards you in Christ, that that might be the thing that produces the kind of radical kindness David showed Mephibosheth in you. See, the only way that the said kind of kindness gets produced in us is when you are a recipient of it from God. That's the only way it gets produced in you. What happens is the more you realize that you are like Mephibosheth, and the more you realize that Jesus is your greater Jonathan, and through him you've received God's said love, his never stopping, never giving up, always forever kind of love and kindness, then what happens is it starts to overflow out of you. And when it's not flowing out of you, that should be like a fever that lets you know there is something wrong in your heart. And the prescription is not more cowbell, right? But instead, it is to remember and keep coming back to God's has said love for you. Let that keep, let that keep overwhelming you. And when you see your unworthiness and yet his abundant love and kindness towards you in Christ, it'll start flowing out of you to others because recipients of God's extravagant love and kindness cannot help but become emissaries of it to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we are so thankful that this passage is not just some lesson that teaches us what it means to be kind and gives us some checklist for how we need to do it. But instead, we are so grateful, God, that this passage is just a little glimpse. It's a foreshadowing of all of your kindness to us in Jesus. God, and your kindness to us in your son makes David's kindness to Mephibosheth look weak. It makes it look small and insignificant. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you might help us to see the magnitude of your kindness to us. And that in seeing your steadfast friendship and love for us, God, we might overflow out of us into others. And we might become a people who are not just vessels, who are not just recipients of your extravagant kindness, but who instead are conduits and emissaries of it to others. Not to earn something, not to get something from you or others, and not because worthy we are worthy, but because Jesus is. Empower us with that kind of way. May the gospel transform us, we pray. Amen.